Hello, this is Melissa, the insurance exam queen, and this is the general insurance terms, all lines of authority, conversational audio. So through this audio, what I will be doing is explaining all the different concepts that you will see in the general terms chapter. And I will be talking to you as if we were sitting with each other at a coffee shop. And that is how I will be explaining this material. If you are interested in audio where you memorize the information, look for the general insurance terms memorization audio. Insurance is known as the transfer of risk. So in life, we have risks. We have the risk of crashing our car. We have the risk of our house burning down. We have the risk of dying too soon and we have the risk of getting sick. Um, all of these are risks that if they were to happen in our lives, we would need to pay for them when they happen. Pay to fix our car, pay to rebuild our house, pay for our cancer diagnosis, pay for the funeral, pay, um, or make up the missed money that the person who died, if they had been alive, they would have made a bunch of money if they had been alive, but now they're dead and they can't make that money for the family. Instead of bearing these risks all by ourselves and paying for them all by ourselves, we give them to the insurance company by buying insurance. So insurance is known as the transfer of risk. The risk of crashing your car, you're transferring it to the car insurance company. The risk of your house burning down, you're transferring it to the homeowner's insurance company. The risk of getting sick, you're transferring the medical bill to the health insurance company. The, the risk of dying too soon, you're transferring that to the life insurance company. So insurance is a transfer of risk. You are giving your risks to them so that they can pay for them and they can be the ones to take care of it if those things were to happen. Now with insurance being the transfer of risk, every person represents a different level of risk. And we're gonna talk about risk. Risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. But each person has their own level of risk. For instance, a good driver would have minimal risk compared to a bad driver who would have a lot of risk. And this is why our premiums can fluctuate so much is because how risky are you? Insurance is the transfer of risk and everyone is doing it, which means when we pay our premium, the insurance company is collecting like all this money, like in a big bucket of money. And whoever has a claim gets to put their hand in the bucket and pull money out. If everybody who put money in is pulling money out, it wouldn't work. We need everybody putting money in, but only some people pulling money out, which is why they this is how they analyze the risk and the premium. The people who are way more likely to pull money out to have a claim are the people who have to pay more money into the bucket. So the higher risk people will have to pay a higher premium. Lower risk people will pay a lower premium, but it could be any of them. And that's part of insurance is that it's like due to chance. You never really know, is it, you know, the good driver may be the one who has the accident and files a claim. But statistically speaking, it's more likely to be the bad driver. So the bad driver's transfer of risk will cost him more. He will have to pay a much higher premium to transfer his risk to the insurance company than say a good driver. So insurance is a transfer of risk and they analyze people based on how much risk they're trying to transfer. The more sick you are, the if you're a bad driver, the more unhealthy you are, the bigger risks you have to transfer, so the bigger your premium is going to be. 
Okay, so if insurance is the transfer of risk, what is risk? And you want to know this definition. Risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. It is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. So this is simply saying something could happen. Our house could burn down. Our, we could crash our car. It is possible and it is uncertain that these may happen, and that is a risk. The exam, though, will really focus on the fact that there are two types of risk. There are pure risk and there are speculative risk. And you need to be able to know both of these risks and know that only pure risk is the one that is insurable. So pure risk is known as loss or nothing, no chance of gain. Uh, you're not going to win. It's either basically something bad happens or nothing happens. So that's a pure risk. A pure risk is either something bad happens or nothing happens. You either drive to your friend's house and you make it there or you crash and you don't like either nothing happens or something bad happens that is a pure risk insurance companies will only cover pure risks they will not offer insurance on something that is not a pure risk so only pure risks are insurable and again pure risks are loss or nothing or no chance of gain basically something bad happens or nothing happens that is a pure risk and only pure risks are insurable the other type of risk is known as a speculative risk. And a speculative risk is where you can lose or gain. You could win or lose. So this would be like gambling. When you gamble, you have the potential of winning, but you also have the potential of losing. Insurance companies will not sell you insurance on situations where you could win, but, but could also lose. Because if you win, you win. And if you lose, they pay out. You always win. You always are ahead if you're able to buy insurance on a speculative risk. And insurance is not about making money or having a profit. It's just about not having to pay out when your car is destroyed or your house is burned down, having someone else take care of those things for you. So again, risk is the uncertainty or the chance of loss occurring. You have the two types of risk, pure risk and speculative risk. Pure is loss or nothing, no chance of gain. Only pure risk is insurable. And then you have speculative, which is loser gain, win or gain very much like gambling and insurance companies will not insure speculative risks. So insurance is the transfer of risk, but that is only one way of handling risk. So the risks that we have in life, the risk of our home burning, car crashing, getting sick, whatever, or the risk of, there's all kinds of things that in life are risky. Um, insurance is only one way of handling the risk in our life. There are other things we do to handle risk and they for the state exam they want you to know the different ways now I use the acronym I am a star at handling risk and that's star with two R's to help me remember all the different ways of handling risk now each way so each letter of star represents a word there's um, share transfer avoid retain reduce now each one of those has their own definition for sure and you could be tested on each one's definition but they're way more likely to test you on star in general just simply remembering what are the ways of handling risk i can share it i can transfer it i can avoid it i can retain it i can reduce it as long as you remember the words for the acronym share transfer avoid retain reduce share transfer avoid retain reduce i am a star i share I transfer, I avoid, I retain, I reduce. As long as you have that down, 
That's like pretty much the 70% of this question. Now, what they all mean, share is like a informal way of doing insurance. So like where insurance is a bunch of people, you know, all across the country for different places paying premium into the insurance company and all that money is saved and stored for if any one of us has a claim, that's insurance. Sharing is doing that, but with people you know, not like one big, huge company, but like even just imagine your friends. Like if you and your friends share a bank account and everybody puts $100 a month into it, and one of you has an emergency, you guys can vote to take money out for that person's emergency. That's basically all insurance really is, is just saving a bunch of money amongst all these people. And if one of them has a claim, they get to take you know the money out. Because not everyone will have an emergency. Not everyone will have a claim. But you want that peace of mind that the money is available to you. So share is just a less formal way of doing uh, you know, insurance among people. There's also some official risk sharing or formal sharing arrangements between like companies and um, people. But for the purposes of the exam, they don't really talk too much about sharing. So just sharing is just simply among people that you know, same as insurance. And then you, and that's the S in star. Then you have the T, which is transfer. You, tra the, you, you can transfer the risk, which is buying insurance. And they usually want you to know that transfer is the best way of handling risk. Then you have A for avoid. And avoid is pretty much impossible to do because what they're saying is avoid everything. Avoid going out of your house. Avoid driving so that you never crash. Avoid getting on an airplane so that you can't ever crash and die. It's really hard to avoid every possible thing. So avoidance is usually the least realistic um, option of handling risk because you can't really avoid everything. Uh, retain is the next uh, R, R. So we're at star, S-T-A-R. Um, and it, retain is where you keep. You keep some of the risk. So when you think about like a retaining wall, it holds back water. A retaining wall holds back water. A retain in insurance is holding back the risk. You're keeping it for yourself. Now, retention could be some of the risk or all of the risk. If you have a deductible, for instance, you are retaining some of the risk. If we're thinking about like car insurance with a $500 deductible, if you crash your car, you will pay the first 500 of the damages and the insurance will pay the rest. You retained the first $500 of damages for the risk of crashing your car. So retain is to keep. It could also be self-insure. If you have no insurance whatsoever, you fully retained the risk. You are now self-insuring. You're keeping all the risk yourself. So that is retain. And the last R of our star, I am a star at handling risk, is reduce. And reduce simply means that you are trying to reduce things that are risky. So wearing a mask, washing your hands. These are all things that we do to reduce the chance that we get sick. Um, a lot of times they will use an example of somebody who is working out and eating healthy. What are they doing? They are reducing the chances that they get sick. Um, so these are all the methods of handling risk. So again, it's more important to remember star, share, transfer, avoid, retain, reduce. Um, then it is to worry about the meaning of each one. You should definitely know the meaning of transfer, though. Insurance is the transfer of risk. 
but yeah, I am a star at handling risk. I share, I transfer, I avoid, I retain, I reduce. One more time. I am a star at handling risk. I share, I transfer, I avoid, I retain, I reduce. Okay, so if insurance is the transfer of risk and risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring, and we need to know how risky someone is, we also want to know about hazards that this person may have. And hazards are things that increase the chance of a risk occurring. So the risk of, cra of, of crashing your car while driving, the, the risk is crashing the car while you're driving. A hazard is something that would make it way more likely that you crash like a tree that fell over into the side of the road or a patch of ice um, on the road that would cause you to slip. Um, so a hazard is something that simply makes the risk way more likely to happen. So hazards increase the chance of a risk occurring. Now there are three different types of hazards and they are likely to ask you about each one. So it's important to know the three different types of hazards. The easiest one is physical hazards, and these are things that you can see or touch. They are the material and structural things. So a physical hazard would be like gas cans next to rags in the garage. It is way more likely that a fire were to occur if there are pieces of cloth next to a gas can in a garage. So that would be an example of a physical hazard. A uh, tree root sticking out of the sidewalk and you trip over it, that's the physical hazard and the tripping uh, the injury to your leg would be the the risk. So uh, physical hazards are the things within your physical environment that you can see or touch, material or structural. Um, the foundation of a building is deteriorating. That would be a physical hazard. So anything in the physical environment. Now also, if we're talking about the life or health exam, physical hazards can also be anything that is like bad for your body, like smoking or drinking could be a physical hazard. Um, but if we're talking auto and home exam, it's gonna be more like gas cans next to rags in the garage, tree branch sticking out of the sidewalk, uh, foundation uh, issues, those would all be physical hazard. Now the next hazard is a moral hazard. And a moral hazard is someone who is lying on purpose, like lying on your insurance application. While you're filling out your application and you're lying about the answers that they ask you, that is lying to the insurance company and they are gonna have more claims than they anticipated because you, you lied and they didn't assess you correctly. So that's why it's a hazard when you lie to them because it increases the chance of a claim happening beyond what they thought would happen. The most common example with moral hazard is lying on your insurance application. So just think a moral hazard is lying on your insurance application on purpose. That is a moral hazard. Then we have a morale hazard and a morale hazard looks like moral. It's just got a little E at the end. A morale hazard is a sense of carelessness. This is a YOLO lifestyle. I do what I want because it feels good to me. That's a morale hazard. This is a person who says, I don't care if I crash my car. I like speeding down the highway and it feels good. And, and if I do crash my car, then my insurance company will pay to fix it and I'll have a brand new car. So ha ha ha, who cares? Whatever, I'm just having a good time. That's a morale hazard. That sense of carelessness, do whatever I want, YOLO man, that is a morale hazard. 
Now, earlier I had said that smoking and drinking would be a physical hazard, but sometimes they like to trick you and they'll ask you a question that says like, we wanted to uh, smoke and drink because we were going to die anyway, so who cares? That would actually be a morale hazard because they're more focused on the attitude of why they're smoking and drinking and it's because they don't care, they're going to die anyway, so they're like, whatever, man. So that would be a moral hazard, not a physical hazard. So again, hazards are things that increase the chance of a risk happening. You have physical hazards, which are things that you can see and touch, material and structural. You have moral hazard, which is lying on purpose, like lying on your insurance application. And you have a morale hazard, which is a sense of carelessness, do whatever I want because insurance will pay for me anyway. Perils is the cause of loss, like fire or hail. So insurance companies, when they say that, you know, we're transferring the risk to them, um, the risks need to be like labeled and, and categorized so they know what they are. And we basically call them perils. And so peril is the cause of loss. A peril is a reason that you file a claim. A peril is the thing that is happening to you or to your house. It's the circumstance or reason that you file a claim. And insurance either will or will not cover you for the peril. It just depends on if the peril is covered or not. But you want to know that peril is the cause of loss. It's the lightning. It's the wind. It's the hail. It's the sickness. It's the accidental injury. It's the thing that happens to you that would make you file a claim. So a peril is a cause of loss. And the exam really loves fire and hail as examples for peril in the general insurance chapter. So peril is the cause of loss. Loss is the reduction or disappearance of value. So insurance companies um, you know, they pay for our losses, so we have to have a definition for losses, which is just the reduction or disappearance of value. Like if you have a $300,000 home and it burns down, the value of the home has disappeared. It has been reduced. A home that is burned down would not be worth nearly as much as a home that is fully erect and standing. So loss is the reduction or disappearance of value. Indemnity means to restore the insured to their previous financial condition. So we have a peril. Our house burns down. Now we have a loss of 300000 because our house burned down. Indemnity would be paying us that 300000 It would be rebuilding the house up to the 300000 That is what indemnity is. Indemnity is to restore the insured to their previous financial condition. Now, it's important with indemnity it's not about profiting. It's not about making money. If your house is a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house and it burns down, they are going to rebuild you a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. They're not suddenly going to rebuild you a huge mansion. They're going to build what you had before. And that's like indemnity is to restore you to where you were before the fire happened. You're not supposed to make money or profit off of indemnity. Now, side note, if you are doing... Um, property or casualty home and auto insurance. Replacement cost defeats indemnity. Replacement cost would be replacing the item for the, you know, the brand new value today. Technically, you're making money off of replacement cost, but 
we usually use replacement costs with the walls and the roof. You can't build a house with used walls and used roof. You have to do replacement costs. But replacement costs does defeat indemnity. <clears throat> That's only for property and casualty people. But indemnity is to restore the insured to their previous financial condition. You're not supposed to profit or make money, but to simply be restored to where you were before the claim happened. Okay, so earlier when we were talking about insurance is the transfer of risk and how basically paying your premium is throwing money into a big bucket of money and it's all save and collected and those of us who have a claim can reach into the bucket and pull the money out and we talked about how some of us are more risky than others good drivers will pay less premium bad drivers will have to pay more premium and we've discovered and learned all of this with the law of large numbers the law of large numbers is says that the more data the more statistics you have to look at the more predictable actual losses will be so what they're saying is when they determine the rates for an 18 year old they're not looking at one 18 year old to see how that one 18 year old drives they are looking at a million 18 year olds and assessing how a million 18 year olds drive because that will give them a better statistic a better prediction about the behavior of 18 year olds you don't want to look at one of them you want to look at a million of them that's what the law of large numbers is saying the more people you have to look at with a similar exposure to loss the more predictable actual losses will be and that's the law law of large numbers this one is pretty much always uh, asked about as a definition so you just want to straight up memorize the definition the law of large numbers says the more data you have to look at the more predictable actual losses will be so speaking of the law of large numbers and determining how risky you are we summarize that by saying your exposure so we don't ask how risky is this person we say what exposure does this person bring to us to the insurance company so exposure is simply the unit of measurement to determine rates for an insured based on how risky you are so if you're a bad driver you bring more exposure if you are unhealthy you bring more exposure and we use that exposure as the unit of measurement to determine how risky you are and what your premium will be Okay, so certificate of authority, what is that? So when an insurance company wants to be able to sell in your state, they have to go to the Department of Insurance in that state and say, we would like to sell here. If the Department of Insurance says, yes, you are allowed to sell here, they will give them a certificate of authority. If they say no, they will get nothing and they will not be allowed to sell. So the certificate of authority is what allows insurers to sell in the state and the certificate of authority makes the insurance company admitted or authorized. And this is the answer that they're looking for when they talk about what does the certificate of authority do? It allows the insurance company to be admitted or authorized. 
And then they may ask you, what does it mean if an insurance company is admitted? And the answer is it's authorized. And if they ask you, what does it mean if an insurance company is authorized? What does it mean? It means they are admitted. <laughs> admitted means authorized. Authorized means admitted. And an insurance company is admitted and authorized when they have that certificate of authority. So before they're allowed to sell, they need to get that certificate of authority. Once they have it, it means that they are admitted and authorized to be able to sell insurance in your state. So there are two main types of insurance companies that they want you to be aware of, and those are stock companies and mutual companies. Now, um, either way, whatever type of company you are, at the beginning of the year, when insurance companies are looking at their expenses and things like that, what they do is they anticipate how many claims they expect to have based on who they are insuring. So they say, okay, we're insuring all these people. We anticipate that we will have $30 million of claims. So when they collect the premium, they are making sure that they collect enough money to have $30 million set aside for just claims. Like they'll, part of the premium money will also be other stuff like paying their employees, keeping the building up, whatever. But as part of that premium, they will set aside 30 million for claims. So this money is meant just for claims. And then they keep that money there and they use it throughout the year. So let's say at the end of the year, they look and they go, wow, we anticipated that we would spend 30 million, but we only spent 20 million. We have 10 extra million dollars that were set aside for claims and we're not using them. What the company does with that money is what will determine if it is a stock company or a mutual company. If we are talking about a stock company, that money will be paid out as a dividend to the shareholders or the stockholders who own the company. So stock companies are owned by shareholders or stockholders and they own the company. And if they, when there is extra money left over, the owners of the company, the stockholders or shareholders will get that money in the form of a dividend check. That money came from premium. And in a stock company, the owners didn't pay premium. They just bought a piece of the company unrelated to a policy. So the, the shareholders, the stockholders, they didn't pay any premium. So when they get that dividend check, that excess money that's left over at the end of the year, that is money that is coming to them as income. It is new money to them that they did not pay out. So that is why they will have to pay a tax on the dividend check in a stock company because in a stock company, they did not buy a policy. They simply bought the company itself. And if there's extra money left over, that premium money it's just income coming to them and they will have to pay taxes on it. So stock companies issue what we call non-participating policies. You don't participate in the ownership via a policy. You, you are a part owner if you bought a stock in the company. Um, a mutual company, on the other hand, does issue participating policies, which means when you buy a policy in a mutual company, you are now part owner of that company. You, your policy literally means I own a piece of this company. So in a mutual company at the end of the year, if they have all this money left over, they will give it back to the owners. They will give it back to the people who paid it. 
So a dividend in a mutual company is actually seen as a return of unused premium. They thought they needed 30 million. They only needed 20. They have 10 million excess dollars. They're going to give it back to the people who paid it in a mutual company. So in a mutual company, the dividends are not taxed. It's money that is being returned to them so they don't need to pay taxes on it. So uh, I'm going to repeat the things that you really need to know for a stock company and a mutual company. And it would even be a good idea to write these down. And as long as you remember these bullet points, it should be enough for you um, to answer questions about stock versus mutual, whether you have a full understanding of it or not. So stock companies are owned by shareholders. Stock companies issue non-participating policies. And stock companies have taxes on the dividend. I'll say that one more time. Stock companies are owned by shareholders. Stock companies issue non-participating policies. Stock companies have taxes on the dividend. And now let's do our bullet points for mutual. Mutual companies are owned by policy owners. Mutual companies issue participating policies. Mutual companies have dividends that are not taxed. And I'll say that one more time. Mutual companies are owned by policy owners. Mutual companies issue participating policies. Mutual companies have dividends that are not taxed. So categorizing a insurance company by stock or mutual is one way to do it. And then we can also categorize insurance companies based on their location. And insurance companies can either be domestic, foreign, or alien. Domestic is all about one state. And it's the one state that an insurance company is headquartered in and the one state that they are selling in. So in Headquartered, incorporated basically means the same thing. Domestic is simply where the insurance company got started. They wrote the rules, the laws of their company under the rules and laws of that state. And every state kind of has different rules and laws. So we always want to know, well, what state did they write the rules and laws under? And that is where they are domestic to. So an insurance company is domestic to the state that they are headquartered in. Um, and then they're selling in. And our memory trick for domestic is one state. If they mention only one state in the question, where the answer is likely domestic. So for instance, if they were to say the insurance company is incorporated in Ohio and selling in Ohio, then that would be domestic because it's one state. Foreign is where the insurer is selling in this state, but they are incorporated in a different state. Um, so this would be you know, the insurance company is incorporated in Illinois, but they are selling in Wisconsin. That would be foreign. So our memory trick for foreign is the test question mentions two states. So one state for domestic, two states for foreign. And our last one is alien. An alien means that the insurer is headquartered or incorporated in another country. So completely outside of the United States. And our memory trick for alien is seeing the word country. So domestic is they are headquartered in this state and selling in this state. Only one state is mentioned, that's domestic. Foreign is the insurer is selling in this state, but they are incorporated in a different state. So if we see the names of two states, we know the answer is likely to be foreign. Alien is the insurer is incorporated in another country. 
And if we, as soon as we see that word country, we know that they're talking about alien. Reinsurance is when one company indemnifies another. So there are some insurance companies that literally exist to be insurance for insurance companies. So there are some risks out there that are really big, like Jeff Bezos's $30 million yacht. And if there was to be one big claim with that, that could be one big hit to one insurance company. So they might share that with someone else. You take half, I take half. And that would be like reinsurance. So reinsurance is when one company indemnifies another company. Now, um, there are a few more definitions that kind of go with this concept, but the main one is just remembering that reinsurance is when one company indemnifies another. But whatever company is giving up the risk or needing help with the risk would be known as the seeding insurer. They are giving up some of their policies to the other company. So they are seeding, they are giving up. The insurance company who is reinsuring them, who is backing them, would be called the assuming insurer because they are assuming the risk from the other company. Now, if they're also transferring only one policy over, we would call it a facultative uh, risk, facultative reinsurance. And if it, they were transferring over a bunch of policies, so like if it was Jeff Bezos's Jeff Bezos $30 million yacht, it would be a facultative uh, reinsurance. But if they were like, we need help with all of these policies in Colorado, because Colorado is having a fire here soon, um, then it would be a treaty where they cover a bunch of policies. Um, so seeding is the insurance company giving up. Assuming is the insurance company taking it. One big policy would be facultative. A bunch of policies would be a treaty. But again, the main thing is remembering that reinsurance is when one company indemnifies another company. And the purpose of reinsurance is to prevent against catastrophic losses. So law of agency. So let's talk a little bit about the law of agency. The law of agency describes the relationship between the insurer and the agent. So the relationship between the insurance company that you're going to be working for and you as a licensed agent. That's what the law of agency describes. Now, the law of agency has a few different rules to it. And this is these are the things that are tested the most. So the law of agency does describe the relationship between the agent and the insurer, and that would be the definition of law of agency. But for the purposes of this, I like to say that law of agency says the agent represents the insurer and the knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. This is the concept we want to memorize for law of agency, which says the agent represents the insurer and the knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. So let's talk about that. Law of agency says the agent represents the insurer. This simply means that you as a licensed agent, you have to answer to the insurance company. Your actions, everything you do falls back on them. They are responsible to you and you are responsible to them. You have to answer to them at the end of the day. So you represent the insurer. And the next concept, the knowledge of the insurer is not, or knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. So let's talk about what this means. Let's say that I call Verizon because they are my cell phone service provider. And I get on the phone with a girl named Vanessa and I'm calling and I say, you raised my bill. You're overcharging me. And Vanessa goes, 
I didn't raise your bell. I'm not overcharging you. And you're like, listen, Vanessa, I'm not talking to you. I am talking to Verizon. I called Verizon customer service, not Vanessa customer service. My point is, is that when we call and talk to a company, we are not thinking that we're talking to the individual. We are talking to the company. So you are the company. If you're working for State Farm and someone calls you, you answer the phone. They're not calling you. They're calling State Farm. So the knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. Whatever you say on that phone call, the customer is going to believe is the company because knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. So in summary, law of agency is describes the relationship between the agent and the insurer. And the two biggest things it describes is that the law of agency says the agent represents the insurer and the knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. So the law of agency is all about describing the relationship between the agent and the insurer. And then we have agent authority. So as an agent, you have three different types of authority, although the third isn't really real, but we'll talk about that. So you have three different types of authority as an agent. You have express authority. And express authority is the authority that is given to you in your contract. So when you start working for an insurance company, you're gonna sign a contract that says what you're allowed to do for them, what they expect you to do for them, all the things and that is express authority and it is written in the contract so as soon as you see express you're looking for written or contract as your answer express authority is written in the contract then you have implied authority and what this is for is all the things that the insurance company expects you or assumes that you can do for them but they didn't write it in the contract like there's so many so many potential things that you might be doing for them and they didn't necessarily write it down in that contract so that would be implied authority so implied authority is not written in the contract but assumed by the insurer that you can do it the last one is apparent authority and this one is not quite real because this authority is what the customer thinks that you can do and th so this is known as perceived authority the customer perceives you to have this authority whether you do or don't so you have to be careful with what you say because the customer is going to believe you now with apparent authority this one is the most trickiest one that people struggle with so i like to make sure that you know what to look for in your questions when you're dealing with apparent authority the most common examples they use for apparent authority are business cards letterhead or stationery so if you were to have a handwritten note on the stationery or letterhead of the business and you send it to the customer the customer is going to read that as an official letter from the company not you know a little note from you like anything that you write down is going to be from the company from them if it's on the stationery or letterhead even if it's like you're so cute i want to take you on a date like to them because it's on the stationery or letterhead that's like an official letter coming from the company the other uh, one business cards so let's say you know you're studying to take your test you call your grandma you tell her hey grandma i'm going to be taking my test and she's like wow i'm so excited for you and she decides she wants to surprise you with some business cards so she gets some business cards printed for you and and is so excited she starts passing them out to all of her friends and then her friends get this business card that say 
Melissa, licensed agent. And what are they going to believe? That you are a licensed agent. So that would be another example of apparent authority where the customer believes you have the authority of a licensed agent because it says so on the business card that was just simply printed too soon and circulated. So business cards, letterhead, or stationery are all examples that you'll see for apparent authority. So in summary, you have express authority, which is the authority that is written in your contract. You have implied authority, which is not written in your contract, but assumed by the insurer that you can do. And then you have apparent authority, which is assumed by the customer, known as perceived authority, likely to be a question about business cards, letterhead, or stationery. Fiduciary responsibility is a person of trust, and that is the definition of fiduciary. But what I want you to think about when you think of fiduciary is fiduciary means the agent submits premium collected to the insurance company because so fiduciary is a person of trust and you are being trusted with people's um, names, date of birth, addresses, premium money, all kinds of things you're being trusted but the biggest thing that they are trusting that you will do is collect the money from the customer and submit it to the insurer. And that's why I label fiduciary responsibility as the agent submits premium collected to the insurance company, because that is what they ask you the most about what you are being trusted with as a fiduciary. So I like to say fiduciary funds, fiduciary funds, fiduciary funds. If they ask about fiduciary, look for the answer that's talking about money talking about submitting premiums. So fiduciary funds, look for the answer that has funds. So fiduciary responsibility means the agent submits premium collected to the insurance company. Elements of a legal contract. So every policy that we have is a contract. Life insurance, auto insurance, homeowners health insurance, every policy is a contract. So since every policy is a contract and you're gonna be selling policies, it's important for you to know contract law. And contract law says there are four elements that make up a legal contract and all four elements have to be in a legal contract or else it's not a legal contract. So we're going to discuss each one here in a minute, but you do want to remember the four elements altogether because they are likely to ask you a question that says all of the following are elements of a legal contract except, and so you just need to simply know the names of them. So it's agreement, which is known as offer and acceptance, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. So I'm going to say that a few times. The elements of a legal contract are agreement, known as offer and acceptance, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. The elements of a legal contract are agreement, known as offer and acceptance, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. And now we're going to talk about each one of these elements.
Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. So with agreement, this, this is saying that both parties have agreed that they want to do this. There's one party saying, I have this. There's another party saying, I have this. And they want to exchange those things. One party makes an offer. One agrees to that offer. So first, you want to know that agreement is known as offer and acceptance. They will definitely ask you that question. So we're just going to repeat that a few times. Make sure it solidifies. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Now, they are also going to ask you, what does offer mean and what does acceptance mean? So you need to be prepared for that. The offer is when the customer submits an application. If insurance is the transfer of risks, that means you are literally offering your risks to the insurance company and you'll pay them to do it. So the offer is when the customer submits an application. You are offering your risks to the insurance company. So that means if they accept them, that means that they have issued a policy. So acceptance is when the insurer issues a policy. So the offer is you submitting an application of your risks. If they accept your risks, that means that they have issued a policy. So in summary, we have agreement, which is known as offer and acceptance. We have the offer, which is when the customer submits an application and acceptance is when the insurer issues a policy. Consideration is the next element of a legal contract, and the definition of consideration means that both parties bring something of value. So when you come together in a contract, you have two different parties, and both parties have to bring something valuable to the other party in order for this contract to exist. So consideration means that both parties bring something of value to the other party. Now, they are then going to ask you what value does the com company bring and what value does the customer bring or what value does the insured bring or the insurer however they will not use the word value they will only use the word value in the definition of consideration which is both parties bring something of value when they ask they don't say what value does the company bring they will say what is consideration on the side of the insured so that is how they say, what value does the customer bring? They will say it as, what is consideration on the side of the insured? And consideration on the side of the insured is app plus premium. That is the value that a customer brings to an insurance company is the application for insurance and the premium that they're willing to pay to transfer those risks. So consideration on the side of the insured is app plus premium. Consideration on the side of the insurer is promise to pay a claim. So that is the value that we are getting from the insurance company that they promise they will pay a claim if it happens. So again, in summary, consideration means both parties bring something of value. Consideration on the side of the insured is app plus premium. Consideration on the side of the insurer is promise to pay a claim.
All right, and our last two elements for a legal contract are competent parties and legal purpose. So the agreement and consideration are the ones that are tested the most. So make sure you fully understand agreement and consideration. For competent parties and legal purpose, it's a lot easier. Competent parties are people who are of sound mind, old enough, and not under the influence of drugs and alcohol. So when you sell an insurance policy, you can only sell it to someone who understands what they are doing, is old enough, and not under the influence of drugs and alcohol. That is a competent party. Someone of sound mind, old enough, and not under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And you're only supposed to sell to people who are considered competent. Now they do like to trick you every once in a while and they'll put in um, who below is a competent party and there'll be like three people all on drugs or too young and then a felon and you don't know which one to pick. The felon is okay. As long as the felon is of sound mind, old enough and not under the influence of drugs and alcohol, then they can purchase insurance. The other thing too with competent parties is it's about mind impairing drugs. So if like you are on a daily medication for blood pressure, that is not gonna make you incompetent. But if you are on recreational drugs or painkillers, then you would be a incompetent party and you would not be able to buy an insurance policy while you are incompetent. Legal purpose is just means that it cannot be against the law. It cannot be against public policy. So this is our Joe Exotic example. If you know anything about Joe Exotic, he is in jail for trying to hire someone to murder someone else in a contract that is not allowed. You are not allowed to have a murder for hire contract because that would break the law. You cannot break the law with whatever contract you establish. It has to fit within the laws of the land or else you cannot have it. So if you create a contract with someone and they don't fulfill it, if you're afraid to go before a judge because the contract was for murdering or a meth house, <laughs> then that is not a legal contract. A legal contract is one that you would be willing to show a judge, say, hey, they didn't stick, they didn't commit to their side. You know, I want to sue them. And, and if you're not afraid, then you're good. But if you're afraid of what the judge will say with that contract, then that is not a legal contract um, and it would not fit legal purpose. So legal purposes cannot be against public policy, cannot break the law. So while agreement, consideration, competent parties, and legal purpose were all the elements of a legal contract and are true for every contract, there are also a few words that are unique to life or, or health insurance or insurance in general, honestly. Um, and so we're going to go over those words and they're adhesion, aleatory, personal, unilateral, and conditional. So let's break these down a little bit. So the first one is adhesion and adhesion is when you think about the word adhesion, think of adhere, sticky, you stick to. So adhesion kind of has two definitions and it's kind of like double-sided stick tape when I think of adhesion, because there's two definitions. On one side of the sticky tape is the insurer has to stick to what they said. So if they said that you were gonna cover you if XYZ happens, they need to cover you if XYZ happens. They have to stick to what they said they were going to do. And they're the ones who wrote the policy, so they need to stick to what they said if they're the ones who wrote it down. The other side of adhesion, the other sticky side of the tape, is that when a customer buys the policy, they have to buy all of the policy or like none of the policy. You can't 
pick or choose parts you do or don't want. You can certainly add or remove coverages based on, you know, what's allowed, but in, like you can't say, well, I want this paragraph, but I don't want that paragraph. That's not an option. You have to get the policy as a whole, as it was written by the insurance company, you either stick to all of it or none of it. So again, adhesion, the insurer has to stick to what they said. They're the ones who wrote the contract and the customer, when they buy that contract, they have to buy all of it or none of it, take it or leave it situation. The next up, we have aleatory or aleatory. You can say it either way, tomato, tomato. But aleatory is an unequal exchange. And what this means is that the customer is going to pay a very small premium while the insurer is going to pay a very large claim. So teeny tiny premium, big claim payout. Little bitty premium, big claim payout. That is aleatory, aleatory. And what I like to do is kind of like, go like think about a seesaw as I say the word aleatory and like seesaw my way through it aleatory and what it makes me think is the scales of justice and they're like never equal they never balance out it's there's always a a seesaw to it so aleatory is unequal exchange never balances out and it's and this will always usually sorry not always but usually will come in the form of an of a scenario question where they will say Bob paid his insurance premium for two months for $200 and then he died and he got a $20,000 payout. What does this represent? Aleatory, teeny tiny premium in exchange for a large claim payout is aleatory, aleatory. Next we have personal, which just means that the policy is between the customer and the insurer generally speaking your policy is just between you and the insurer you can't give it away it's not anyone else's um, it is personal between you and the insurer for life insurance you can actually give away your policy or sell it um, so life insurance isn't quite so personal but all the other insurance is but personal itself simply just means it's between you and the insurer the customer and the insurer then we have unilateral and unilateral is a one-sided promise and what this means is that only one side is making a promise here in our contract only the insurer is making a promise they are promi promising that if we pay our premium and we have a valid claim they will pay it they are promising to pay and the other part of unilateral is that only the insurer is legally bound to do anything so if they don't fulfill that promise, we can actually take them to court and sue them for not fulfilling that promise. And that is unilateral. Now, additionally, um, when we think about the customer, the customer is not promising to pay premium. They either pay it or they don't. And if they don't pay it, the policy simply cancels and it's done. But if the insurer doesn't pay, no, we will sue them. If, if they fail to pay a valid claim, we will take them to court and sue them and make them pay. And that's what unilateral is saying. Only one side is legally bound to do anything and it's the side that made a promise. And only the insurer made a promise. So only the insurer is legally bound to do anything. Then we have conditional and conditional just means that both parties have rules and duties they must follow and do. So conditional says, um, you know, the 
customer has to submit the claim within a certain period of time and conditions say the insurer has to pay the claim within a certain period of time. Like everybody has rules that they have to follow. Everybody has duties and those all come from conditions because the policy itself is conditional. Everybody's got rules that they have to follow, which makes the policies conditional. And those are the basic things of an insurance contract that are unique from the elements. Remember, the elements are agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. Those are true for all insurance um, policies and all legal contracts. And then what's also additionally true for insurance is you have adhesion, uh, stick to what you say, take it or leave it, aleatory, unequal exchange, personal between the customer and the insurer, unilateral one-sided promise only the insurer is bound to do anything and conditional both parties have rules and duties they have to follow and do reasonable expectations is exactly what it says is that a customer can reasonably expect coverage if the agent implied it through a sale so if you're talking to an insurance agent and they're like oh yeah that would be covered oh yeah this would be covered if this happens then you can reasonably expect coverage and that's pretty much how they ask it on the exam they will say like joe listened to the insurance agent who said this was covered joe expects it to be covered what do we call this reasonable expectations it is that simple Warranties and representations. So we are talking about when a customer is filling out an insurance application, they, they are either making warranties or they are making representations. A warranty is the easiest one to understand. And this is a absolutely true statement that whatever they saying is guaranteed to be true, must be true. And if it's not true, then you're lying and committing fraud. So warranties are things like, what is your address? What kind of car do you drive? How many bedrooms are in your house? Like that is a factual statement. There's no possibility for those answers to not be what the answers are. So that's a warranty is an absolutely true statement. It is guaranteed, factual, we can prove it. And if we can't, that means you're lying and you're committing fraud. So a warranty is an absolutely true statement. Now, those are generally used for home and auto insurance, but what about life or health, which asks questions like, do you have cancer? Well, technically, to the best of one's knowledge, you probably don't, but is it possible that you have a tumor in your body that you are unaware of? Yes, absolutely it is possible that you have a tumor in your body that you are unaware of when you answer that question, do you have cancer? If you were to say no, you are to the best of your knowledge telling the truth you believe it's true you think it's true but it's not guaranteed to be true so representations are statements where the insurance company knows that you are telling your best answer but it's possible that the truth is not your best answer so representations are statements that are believed to be true but are not guaranteed to be true representations are statements you think are true to the best of your knowledge are true but they might not be true and that's representation now 
they associate the word representations with statements. So you may see questions that say, a customer made statements on the application. What is this known as? And the answer is representations. They associate the word statement with representations, representations, statement. I know that representations are statements that are believed to be true, but sometimes they don't put in believed to be true, must be true, isn't true. So if they don't do that, just representations. Statements are representations, statements are representations. When you think of warranty, you must see that true statement. A warranty is a true statement. So if they don't talk about truth at all, then and they simply say statements, you're gonna go with the answer of representations. Now a misrepresentation is an untrue statement. And when a customer is filling out the application, they may make, make, they may make misrepresentations unintentionally. A misrepresentation doesn't mean they outright lied. That would be an intentional misrepresentation. But a regular misrepresentation simply means an untrue statement. They could have forgot. They could have misspoke. They, they may have not understood the question. That could be a misrepresentation but it's simply an untrue statement. If you lied, then it would be intentional misrepresentation, which would imply that you lied. So warranty, absolutely true statement, must be true. Representations, I believe it's true. I think it's true to the best of my knowledge is true, but it might not be true. And representations are also simply statements. And then you have misrepresentations with our untrue statements. So speaking of intentional misrepresentations fraud is deceiving or lying to cheat the insurance company so anytime the customer is intentionally lying especially you know lying about the statement the the warranties on an application or the representations that they're supposed to be making are supposed to be true to the best of their knowledge and if they're not, then they are lying. And the reason they're lying is to cheat the insurance company so that one, they can either get a lower premium or two, get more money on the claim. So fraud is deceiving or lying to cheat the insurance company. Now, concealment means withholding or hiding information on the application, which means concealment is a form of fraud because why else would you withhold or hide information? Because you're trying to lie or deceive the insurance company. So concealment is a form of fraud, which is why some people get fraud and concealment confused. So I want to stress that the difference is that concealment is specific to withholding or hiding information. You're, you're, you're trying to withhold it, not tell it, or you're hiding it, Whereas fraud is like saying something completely ridiculous or changing the numbers, whereas concealment is trying to con conceal. Like I always think of like eating a little candy away from your children because your children, when they hear that rustling, always try to come eat the candy. You, you try to conceal the fact that you're opening it up. You're trying to withhold or hide the fact that you have a candy, <laughs> a piece of information. So concealment is withholding or hiding. You really need to see those words for the answer or the question to be concealment, where fraud is just anytime you're lying or deceiving the insurance company. And that concludes our general insurance terms conversational audio. 
Don't hesitate to reach out and email me at insuranceexamqueen at gmail.com if you have any questions. And I am sending you all the love and all the vibe that you can pass this exam. And don't hesitate to reach out also if you would like to work one-on-one and get some more conversational audio going. I do offer Voxer support where you can message me and talk to me all day long throughout your studies to get all the support you need, a tutor in your pocket uh, with their Voxer support. And that is available that you can find on my website. Again, thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. All the love and all the vibes that you are passing this exam.